Talk Theology for Sojourners. I'm John Sweat. And actually today we're not joined by Spencer Grusing, but we have a special guest. And I'm excited to have him on the podcast with us. But before I introduce him to you, let me just remind you to rate us on your favorite podcatcher. Give us a rating there on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us kind of get a sort of a broader exposure to people in the podcast world. And um, you can also check us out on Facebook on our page, Theology for Sojourners. That is the word for, F-O-R. But without further delay, uh, my guest this evening is Dr. Lee Irons. And uh, Dr. Lee, why don't you just begin by giving us sort of an introduction about yourself or whatever you feel comfortable sharing with, uh, with our listeners. Well, thank you, John, for having me on your podcast um, yeah, my name is uh, Charles Lee Irons. I, I go by Lee, but I put the Charles in there to distinguish myself from other Lee Ironses that exist out there in the, <laughs> in the internet. Uh, so yeah, my name is, is Lee Irons, and um, I am a Reformed theologian uh, who focuses on New Testament and biblical theology. Uh, my training is at Westminster Seminary, California, back in the 90s, and then uh, I did my PhD in New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, yeah, I know that that sounds like a liberal school, and it basically is, but I was able to to hang in there and, and uh, keep the faith while I was doing my work. I wrote a dissertation on the topic of the righteousness of God uh, in Paul, you know, when Paul uses that, that phrase, you know, Romans 1.17, that uh, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the focus of it was to critique uh, the interpretation that N.T. Wright made famous, which is that he thinks that phrase really refers to God's covenant faithfulness. So I did a word study on, mm. on righteousness in uh, the Old Testament, Jewish literature, Greek secular literature, uh, and argued that, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> it means the righteousness that comes from God as a gift. Uh, so it's, it's, um, Amen. yeah, but there's a whole, there's a whole theological, there's a whole history behind that interpretation. N.T. Wright didn't come up with it on his own. Uh, it goes back to the 19th century and to some of the things that the uh, uh, Protestant liberals were talking about, like Rischel and Harnack. And uh, they were saying that God's, they, they were questioning this idea of, the distributive justice of God and saying that God is love. And so what is God's justice then? Well, they didn't really like that idea because it sounded too, you know, wrathful and all this. So they redefined it as God's commitment to his people. And so they said righteousness in the Hebrew Bible, as opposed to the Greek language in the Hebrew, it's a relational concept. You know, it's God's commitment to his people. It's his faithfulness mm. as opposed to the Greco Roman culture, which is very judicial and, and, and it's this old canard that there's this radical contrast between the Hebraic and the Greek way of thinking, which is totally false. So anyway, yeah, so it was, it was a critique of that and defending the, the Reformation idea that the righteousness of God, at least in, in those Pauline texts, is the righteousness that God uh, has provided for us in his son through the obedience and death and resurrection of Christ and that is given to us as a gift. So it's the righteousness that comes from God. So, yeah, that's what I did my doctorate on, but um, I have a lot of other interests as well. Lately, I've been uh, 
doing some teaching on the topic of eternal generation. There's been uh, some recent retrieval of classical Trinitarianism, so I've been doing some work on that, and uh, specifically on uh, recovering the traditional translation of only begotten. So most of our English Bibles have mm. taken that out, and you know the famous John three sixteen, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, has been changed to only Son, and. Uh, Almost all the modern English versions, the NIV, the ESV, et cetera, they all go that route. And I think that that's also incorrect. Uh, so I go back and look at all the arguments for why the scholars changed it and showed that all their arguments, kind of like the whole righteousness debate, said, uh, no, that's not correct. Uh, just actually <laughs> do a word study and you find out that, again, it was a theologically motivated thing. And so we got to go back to the original sources and find out for ourselves what these words mean. So I'm kind of a, yeah, I guess you could say I'm sort of a, I'm a theologian, biblical theologian, but I really am, am interested in word studies. And I think that that has an important role to play in theology. So yeah, that's me in a nutshell. Well, thanks for that, brother. Man, I, I need I need to have you back on to talk about uh, the new perspective on Paul. <laughs> oh yeah, we could finished, do that. Uh, well, I read Matthew Bates's book, uh, uh, gospel allegiance uh last year and wrote a little oh my are you serious just, you read that book wow i hope you were okay i, I did i did read it i read it i had to read it i read it three <laughs> times uh to try to be as charitable as i could um and then i finished uh i just finished robert Kerr's book in the mentor series on cracking the i think it's cracking uh -huh. the foundation yeah. he does oh, a yeah, tremendous job yeah. of uh interacting with those jewish sources that no one wants to <laughs> no, no one wants to go back and read, but he does a great job of kind of sifting through them and oh, yeah. laying out a really logical case. Like, hey, even if you just grant yeah. this one source has a works righteousness. Anyways, we're 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 shifting here, but I'd love to have you back on to talk about that. So no, we could totally do that because that was part of my research for my dissertation was doing all that, looking at the um, uh, E.P. Sanders and his whole thing on you know reinterpreting Judaism as a gracious religion and denying that they taught uh, any kind of concept of justification by works and all that. So yeah, we could go into that if you want, but maybe yeah, another, let's, another yeah, episode. Yeah, let's do it in another episode for sure. So uh, Dr. Dr. Irons has joined me this episode to talk about the relationship between um, the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the believer's union with Christ. So we'll be talking about questions and answering questions like, how does the righteousness of Christ come to the believer? How does Christ's work for us as our federal representative connect to Christ's work um, to us via the Holy Spirit through union with Christ? And then questions like, what is the relationship between justification and sanctification? And uh, then really asking the question at the end, you know, how does, how does our understanding of these things um, comfort, encourage, and equip the believer? Uh, as they hopefully deepen deepen the understanding of the gospel and what it is that Christ has accomplished for us and applied to us. So, Dr. Ryans, I know you've got uh, a kind of a lengthy, I say a, a lengthy, but a, I think a good summary of uh, the, the, the sort of debate within Reformed circles over this issue um, in your 13-part series, which I'll tag in the show notes. But could you just sort of give us a brief lay of the land most people hear Union with Christ, they think, oh, I see all these new books on it. Everyone's in agreement about the, the, 
the 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 details about how it works. Um, can you just kind of give us a brief, maybe snapshot of the the debate and and kind of why it maybe maybe even say, tell us why it matters. Um, yeah. So you referenced uh, a thirteen part blog series that I did on my upper register blog on just uh, kind of laying out this debate. So there, there, there's actually a broader debate besides the one that I was looking at. I was looking at specifically the debate between the two Westminster campuses, California and Philadelphia. Um, but it's much bigger than that. This, there was a specific debate that took place around, I would say, 2007, and then maybe for the next five or so years after that. It's kind of died down now, but uh, that debate was specifically between the two faculties. Uh, so at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, you had uh, Professor Richard Gaffin and Lane Tipton at the time. Uh, he has since left the seminary and others. At Westminster Seminary, California, you had professors like John Fesco, who again has since left and gone on to RTS. Uh, you had uh, Dr. Michael Horton, Scott Clark, Bob Godfrey, uh, Dave Andrunen, and so on. And these two groups of faculty, things have changed a little bit since then, but these two faculties were debating uh, in a cordial way, not, not accusing each other of heresy, but debating the precise relationship between justification and union with Christ. And right away you have to, I think most people know what justification is, uh, or at least have a vague idea that, you know, it's being forgiven and receiving uh, Christ's righteousness by faith. Uh, but union with Christ is the part of that phrase, justification and union with Christ, that needs a little bit more fleshing out because what exactly is union with Christ? And mm. the, the reason why it's a little bit uh, confusing is because different people have different ideas of what union with Christ is. So uh, it boils down to basically this. Um, there's a forensic union with Christ and there is a vital union with Christ or existential union with Christ. And these two are not like completely separate unions, but they're like two different aspects of one union. And the two Westminsters will emphasize one or the other more strongly. So Westminster Seminary, California emphasizes forensic union with Christ, or we could call it representative union, right? Focusing on Christ as our federal head, our covenant head. Uh, Christ obeyed the law for us and we are represented by him. And because of his obedience to the law and his perfect righteousness, we are accepted as righteous in God's sight. Uh, the, the other Westminster, the Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, emphasized the vital or existential aspect of union with Christ. And this is the union with Christ that focuses more on our experience in our own personal lives. So, for example, there's a really helpful verse um, in, in Romans chapter 16. And you're thinking, well, why are we going all the way to the end? Uh, yeah, believe it or not, in the greetings in chapter 16, there's an interesting phrase that highlights this existential, vital, personal union with Christ. 
that is the focus of the Philadelphia folks. And that is Romans 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. And so think about that. If, if, if Paul is saying that they, this couple, Andronicus and Junia, if they were in Christ before Paul was, then what he's saying is essentially that they were converted and became Christians before Paul did. And so we're talking about in that verse then, there are other verses that use that same language of in Christ, but it's something you know, more uh, you know, beyond our own personal experience. For example, Ephesians 1, right? Ephesians 1, verse 4, God chose exactly. us in Christ say, yeah. before the foundation of the world. And in that phrase, in that verse, yeah. the phrase in Christ, you can't say, well, they were in Christ before me then, right? Because we were all in Christ at that point in eternity past. So right. the, the phrase union with Christ, as it's used by Paul, um, is very flexible. And so sometimes it has a more... Um, existential, vital meaning to it, referring to our own personal story, our own conversion. Uh, really, it's another way of saying that, I, wouldn't you just say that, kind of to simplify it, I don't want to oversimplify these deep theological concepts, but isn't that just another way of saying that's when you receive the Holy Spirit, right? Right. <laughs> so right. in the Romans exactly. 16, 7 sense, they were in Christ before me, that's when the Holy Spirit came into them. That's when they were converted. Um, but in Ephesians 1, 4, it's talking about predestinarian union, something way before, you know, before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. Um, and then there's something in between too, which is our union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So that's not all the way back to eternity past, but neither is it talking about our own experience of when we became a Christian. Uh, it's referring to this representative union that, uh, when Christ took the wrath of God for us on the cross, he was doing so as our representative. And so we can say in a sense that we died with Christ. Yeah. Like and Romans, that, well, Romans 4, yeah. 25, but I think of Romans six, right? Like yeah. man, the first few verses there. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what I, so when we're talking about this debate about the relationship between justification and union with Christ, we have to be very, um, precise about how we define union. Which of those three aspects of union are we talking about? The union with Christ before the foundation of the world in the eternal decree or our representative union when uh, we died with Christ and we're raised with him because his death and resurrection was for us as our federal head? Mm. Or are we talking about our vital existential union when the Holy Spirit came into our hearts at the moment of conversion? Um, and so the debate primarily centered the, the two Westminsters were debating primarily the third one and asking what is the relationship between justification and that vital existential experiential union with Christ. And the thesis of Dr. Gaffin is that a vital existential union with Christ has priority over the or in the ordo salutis so the ordo salutis is just a latin phrase for the order of salvation and we think about you know being justified being regenerated all the different key moments of 
when God applies redemption to us, uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, uh, and there's debates over how exactly to map out the details of the relationships between all those elements. That's called the Ordo Salutis discussion. But according to Dr. Gaffin, union with Christ, now we're talking about that vital union, is primary. And the Ordo Salutis is best understood as receiving the benefits of Christ in vital union with him. Yeah, and, no, I think that's that's really helpful. I, sorry, we're going to keep going. Uh, no, go kind of on a, uh, Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And as I was reading, you know, you sent me a lot of the kind of those uh, documents and articles of the, the different professors going back and forth. And one of the things that struck me in the in the discussion and uh, even now I I've read a few articles, so I'm sure these brothers have written wider and longer elsewhere, perhaps. But um, in the discussion, it seemed that there was there obviously the, the discussion kind of centered around Calvin, um, but there there was very little attention given overall to sort of the federal theology of Scripture, um, that you know sort of the two atoms and and two, two covenants, um, right? Uh, the covenant of works with Adam in the garden, and the covenant of redemption or the pactum salutis with uh, the Son of God in eternity past, and um, you know when you look at verses like Romans five eighteen, Romans five eighteen through nineteen. Therefore, as one tre- trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. And then First Corinthians fifteen twenty two, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And I just it struck me, Doctor Irons, as we we're thinking about this, we're thinking about vital union. And then we're thinking about the ordo, you know, does, does justification have any priority, even a logical priority to sanctification? Um, and we're thinking about these things. It, it's just interesting that when we think about uh, covenant theology, right, as Reformed theologians, that, that should be a key component. And the two-atom structure, if you will, of redemptive history, um, there is this forensic federal representative element that precedes and undergirds even before we we come into existential or mystical or vital union with Christ, and so we just kind of flesh out for us that two two covenants, two federal heads, that sort of two atom structure, um, to just kind of show how that unfolds in redemptive history and what you know we've already kind of touched around it, but yeah, that's exactly it. You you kind of uh, put your finger right on the issue, so the the uh, position of Westminster Philadelphia was I guess still is to some extent but at least at this time uh, it was um, not to deny I don't I don't think that they denied the uh, two atom structure of Romans 5 and first Corinthians 15 but it was not emphasized and it, was, it kind of receded into the background and all their whole discussion on justification was about how it relates to this vital union. Um, whereas the, the other Westminster in California, they were beginning their whole starting point for this discussion was, as you said, federal theology, the two covenant heads, Adam and Christ. And their argument was, look, was Adam's sin imputed to us? through some kind of a vital existential union with Adam? (laughs) 
No, I mean, it's yeah. obvious, right? It was, it was an immediate imputation. Of course, that's one of the big mm. debates in Reformed theology. If you go back to the 16th century, there was a debate over immediate versus immediate imputation, uh, talking about how do we get Adam's sin? Is Adam's sin imputed to us directly by a forensic imputation? And then as a result of that, we're born guilty. And then the, the, uh, the change of nature, having an, uh, a sinful nature, is the consequence of that. Uh, or that's immediate imputation. Or uh, is Adam's guilt imputed to us through some sort of mediation of our own sin or some kind of like as original sin, that is our sinful nature, does that mediate the guilt of Adam's sin to us? Um, of course, it's, you can see why people would, would desire to go towards immediate imputation because it kind of softens it and makes it seem a little sure. bit less unfair, right? <laughs> but, you know, the Reformed tradition has said, no, that's not correct. Romans 5, you know, 12 to 19 is absolutely clear that the reason why people died is because of Adam's sin, not because of their own sin. Um, and so, I mean, the, the main argument there is, is in verses... Uh, 12 to 14 where it says just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned and of course that phrase because all sin means because all sinned representatively in adam for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given so remember at, at sinai when the law came there was a works principle there that if you sin you'll be under you'll be judged you'll be under a curse and if you obey you know, Leviticus 18.5, uh, these are the commandments that God has given, which if a man does, he will live by them. So before the law came, before that works principle came, where sin leads to death and obedience leads to life, sin was in the world. Sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, that is until that works principle came into the world, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That is, they didn't sin by breaking a covenant of works the way Adam did. So all the people that lived after Adam's sin, all the way up until the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, all those people, like all the people during the time of the flood and so on, they were dying, right? But they weren't dying because they were transgressing a covenant of works the way Adam did. So how is it that they died? Well, it's because Adam's sin was imputed to them. So that argument there in Romans right. 5, 12 to 14 makes it startlingly clear that at least on the first side of the parallel, parallel the Adam side, uh, sin or guilt is imputed directly and immediately apart from any kind of vital or existential change in us. And so yeah, that's, the Westminster Esposito yeah, people say are saying, go ahead. Oh, so I was just going to say that that was the, the, the sort of the point that clicked for me as I was reading that that series is, you know, you you, uh, you made that connection. Right. Just as the sin of the first federal head was imputed to us via an immediate imputation that did not involve a mystical union with them. So Christ's righteous righteousness is imputed right. to us by an immediate imputation. And I think John Murray's treatment and the imputation of Adam's sin, he's, you know, dealing with that argument and looking at Romans 5 and saying, look, I see, you know, immediate or immediate, but when you look at Romans 5, it's, it's immediate. Right. And, uh, and so, it, you know, that then ties uh, this sort of two Adam structure, this sort of two 
two covenant of works. Just, I don't want to maybe not call it that, but but this covenant of works in Adam, covenant of redemption in Christ, um, that then connects uh, sort of the the dots, if you will, of of what Christ as our federal head has done for us, and why it then is that the effectual call comes to us, right? Yep. And, and so, but sorry, you were going to go ahead and say, you were going to say the Escondido view before I jumped in there. Uh, just what you said, that they, you know, the other Westminster is saying that uh, let's be consistent, you know? So if this is the way it worked with the first Adam, then this is how it works with the second Adam, with Christ. You know, federal union, that legal representative union must precede and ground the vital union. Yeah, that's and actually so, the way Dr. Fesco from Escondido on his his uh, he's got an article on John Owen uh, that it's called John Owen on Union with Christ and yeah. Justification. And commenting on that, he uh, quoting John Owen, he says, you know, Owen is not content to define Union with Christ and Justification strictly in terms of the Ordo Salutis or even right. redemption considered anthropologically. He goes right. on to say, when one steps back to the bigger picture beyond the application. Of redemption, Owen explains how imputation occurs prior to its application to the believer through through uh, right. union with Christ. So, this is the whole thrust of you know Mike Horton, John Fesco, all those brothers at Westminster in California is that the forensic has priority. Yes, they're not denying the the mystical, the vital, the transformative aspect, but they're saying the forensic has priority. And uh, actually, that's kind of an interesting point, because you mentioned earlier on that a lot of these, if you go back and look at these uh, exchanges between the two faculties back in 2007, 8, 9, 10, somewhere in there, a lot of the debate is over Calvin, mm -hmm. because how do you interpret Calvin? Because Calvin does really emphasize union with Christ, and he sees it as central. And he talks about the double benefit that we enjoy in Christ, the double benefit being justification and sanctification the you know, imputation of righteousness, and then the transformation. But here's the interesting thing. So at first, it, you, you kind of go, oh, wow, it sounds like Calvin is supporting Gaffin. And it seems like Gaffin has a good argument there that he's just repeating Calvin. But here's the part that, that uh, kind of is a twist to it, which is that Calvin, even though he does see union with Christ as central, he does not draw the conclusion from that that the Philadelphia folks want to draw, which is that there is no priority between justification and sanctification. They're equally basic. Mm. So the, the Westminster crowd, the Philadelphia group, wants to say that justification and sanctification, the double benefit right, of being in Christ, have no priority. They're just these two equally basic, uh, simultaneous gifts that we receive in Christ with no prioritization of one or the other. But Calvin doesn't make that leap. He doesn't, he starts off where they do with union with Christ, but he doesn't go to that next step and say, therefore equally basic. What he says is no justification is the primary hinge on which religion turns. He says justification right. by faith is the beginning, the foundation, the cause, the proof, you know, it's like it is everything hangs on it, you know. So. 
Yeah, I think you and Chris, I remember you and Chris Cahi and y'all and uh, I'm gonna tag this because y'all have a y'all did an episode on the Glory Cloud podcast right. on Union with Christ, and y'all did a great job of talking about that statement from Calvin. Yeah. And even just thinking of the the the, the uh, visual picture that Calvin chose there, and that and you know the main hinge on which mm-hmm. religion right. turns and. And Calvin also says, and I, I uh, Dr. Fesco uh, kind of turned me on to this in one of these papers that I read from him, but in his, uh, in his Selective Works, Volume 7, Acts of the Council of Trent with the Antidote, Calvin yep. says this, he says, In short, I affirm that yep. not by our own merit, but by faith alone, are both our persons and works justified. That justification of works depends on the justification of the person as the effect on the cause. Therefore... It is necessary that the righteousness of faith alone so proceed in order and be so preeminent in, deg- in degree that nothing can go before it or obscure it. And I know Calvin treats sanctification pretty lengthy in his institutes, and he treats right. it before justification. Right. Um, and I think there's, I think uh, there's been some great observations given his cultural context of why that might have been the case. But when you go look at that the the main hinge on which religion turns statement and and and, and also this I, you know I agree that I don't while he makes much of vital union he doesn't seem to make the same conclusion right um, and he doesn't seem to be then uh, out of line with an with an Owen or with later reformed writers I think there is a right. more obvious uh, development in covenant theology and even federal theology uh, that happens in the Reformation but. Like you said, I don't think there's a, I don't think the same conclusion is reached, even though he makes much right. of vital union. So, right. That's a great quote from uh, the antidote to the Council of Trent. Uh, that's yeah, it's just, go- it's gold. I love that quote. Yeah, it, it's gold because I know the other quote, the other, uh, you know, the the hinge text. There's some uh, translation uh, arguments that can, that have at least attempted to be made about why that might not really mean what it sounds like uh, but that other one is is he's he's pretty straightforward and he, and he says it sort of in two different ways in those two sentences back to back yeah there. yeah so. by the way for, for our listeners the hinge quote is from uh book three chapter 11 paragraph one that's right and and the rest of that sentence goes on to say going back to the hinge quote it says for unless you understand first of all what your position is before god and what the judgment which he passes upon you, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which piety toward God can be reared. So you mm. can't grow in your sanctification unless you're already assured of your justification. You have to know what your, pos- right. what your legal position is before God and have that assurance. So... Yeah, Calvin is definitely at first. At first, it seems like a, a good case can be made that he's on their side, but in the end, it's not the case. So, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and so that means I think when we look at the two two covenant structure, it means that uh, imputation, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, is the legal ground of uh, regeneration and and the transformative. Right, Romans four twenty five, First Corinthians fifteen forty five. And, um, you know, Bavink, Herman Bavink, which I'm, I'm uh, spending a lot of time with Bavink lately, but he says, and this comes from his Reformed Dogmatics, Volume 3, page 525, he says, hence the imputation of Christ precedes mm-hmm. the gift of the Spirit 
yep. and regeneration, faith and conversion, or sorry, faith and conversion do not first lead us to Christ, but are taken from Christ by right. the Holy Spirit and imparted to his own. Right. And, yeah, Bobak uh, is really clear on this. He's he's yes. astounding. He's he's awesome. Yes, yes. And I don't know what you think of this verse and, and, and correct me if this is not this doesn't touch on this, but I, I, I sort of discovered, uh, stumbled upon this uh, from Pastor Tom Hicks, but 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Listen to what Peter says. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And... Uh, and James Buchanan, in his, in his work on justification, speaking of this verse, he says, but still further to mark the difference between them, the faith itself is said to be through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is bestowed upon us as a free gift of divine grace, but also as the fruit of Christ's mediatorial work, so that faith is doubly related to this righteousness. First, as it is procured by it, and bestowed on account of it, and secondly, as it is the means of apprehending and appropriating it, the hand which receives it, the reliance which rests upon it. And what I see James Buchanan saying there on Second Peter one one is the idea that this faith, uh, this faith that we we appropriate the righteousness of Christ by, well, it, it first is grounded and rooted in the righteousness itself being given to us, right? So, firstly, that faith is procured by the righteousness of Christ and it's bestowed on our account. And secondly, because we've received that righteousness, that it's been imputed to us, we then right. have the faith to apprehend it and appropriate it. So, right. That's a great quote. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that's I didn't from even know... his treatise on justification. That's right. His, yep. Doctrine, okay. the doctrine of justification. I can look up, uh, I, I just have the the book here but i can look up okay. that citation later yeah i love that that's a great quote so yeah exactly and you know this has been lost um for some reason i i don't know all the reasons why but people have gotten so focused on justification in the subjective side of it that is that we receive justification by faith and um we in, in sort of in, in our conversion experience, right. Of receiving, being justified by faith in the conversion experience that people have lost a lot of reform. People have lost this doctrine of imputation, which is focusing on the objective side of justification. The subjective side is the experience of it, you know, receiving the forgiveness of sins in your heart and soul and your conscience is, is, uh, pacified and you have this sense of assurance and forgiveness and acceptance with God. And that happens by faith alone as we look to Christ alone. And that's all well and good. And that's completely correct. But what about this other idea? What about Romans five and the imputation of Christ's righteousness as, as the federal head who has accomplished the righteousness for us by his death and resurrection, by his active and passive obedience, that is the foundation of everything. Everything flows from that. Even our subjective ability to appropriate it by faith comes from that. So, mm. yeah, this concept of imputation yeah, so or this, the objective this, side I, is what's missing. Yeah, so that, that was something that 
really took me uh, by surprise when I started kind of sort of reading some of the things you'd written on this when you started to make this distinction between active and passive justification or it's been called obje objective and subjective justification. Um, I thought, what? goodness gracious, I think imputation, I think ju you know, justification by faith alone, right? The righteous, righteousness of Christ is imputed to me, but, but faith, right? Faith and then that righteousness. Um, do, do you think there's a, is this a, are you making a sort of a, a theological argument for this distinction? Or do you think scripture, do you think we could go to a place in scripture and, and kind of see where that distinction is made? In other yes, words, is sir. there a clear biblical basis for it? Or is this something that, you know, uh, not that we need a proof text for everything per se, but, or is this something we're sort of making an application of? several texts and and sort of uh seeing it that way no i definitely believe that it's it's scriptural it's biblical um you've already mentioned some of the verses you know first uh, second peter one um but there's also other passages too like for example um think about all the verses that talk about being reconciled okay. uh you know Romans 5.10, um, Colossians 1.22, 2 Corinthians 5.18-19. Uh, the reconciliation passages have often been overlooked because we're just used to thinking in terms of the ordus ludus, and so we talk about justification, regeneration, sanctification, right? And so we're just looking for those verses that talk about that. But what about the reconciliation mm -hmm. verses? For example, Paul says that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, Romans 5.10, or that God reconciled us to himself by the death of his son. I mean, these are interesting because it's not just talking about when we think of reconciliation in terms of the metaphor of two uh, countries at war, and then they come to have peace, and so they're reconciled to each other, or two individuals who are fighting, and then they become reconciled. Uh, it's easy to view the biblical terminology of reconciliation in that kind of interpersonal subjective sense of, okay, I'm reconciled to that person now because I feel good about them now, or, you know, I've forgiven them or they've forgiven me. But in the biblical Pauline doctrine of reconciliation, it's a totally objective thing. Yes, it has subjective results where, you know, Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God is the subjective experience of, of reconciliation. But reconciliation in Paul's theology is something that God does. God reconciles us to himself. That's right. <laughs> How does he do it? By the death yeah. of his son, through the, through the active and passive obedience yeah. of Christ. We are reconciled to God objectively. So what does that mean? Well, isn't that basically saying the same thing as imputation? Isn't that saying that God is showing his favor toward us? God reconciles us to himself through Christ. And so now he shows his favor toward us. And then as a result of that, we receive it. We receive it by faith. And then we become reconciled from our side and the subjective side. You know, that verb receive is used in Romans 5.11, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It doesn't say, in other words, it's not as though faith is the condition to being reconciled. God reconciles us, and then we receive it by faith. 
So isn't yeah, that, yeah, isn't that imputation? Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, so. it is. It is. I, I, knew, I knew I actually have these verses in front of me. I knew those were verses, but I just think of some religious going, wow, that's some serious scholastic distinction you just made there. But no, I mean, the second Peter text, those texts. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, when you think about that, it is God who, who justifies us, right? God, that's the beauty of the gospel, right? God, through his son, brings us beyond probation, right? And not right. just not just passive obedience, but active obedience, the, the 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 righteousness of Christ given to us as if it were ours. And so it, you've, you, this is quoting you, but you say faith is firm confidence of what Christ has done for you, not a condition to be met to receive forgiveness of sins. And right. um, <laughs> we're, I'll, I, I want to just jump to the application here and talk about how this affects assurance and things, but we'll wait. But um you know, this is this distinction between imputation. I, I I prefer to say the distinction between imputation and justification. But you know, whether you call it that or uh, active yeah. and passive, or objective and subjective, you can find this in Burkhoff. You can find this right. in Bavink. You can find this in Hodge. Yep. I actually, I actually found it in uh, Question Five of the Heidelberg. Yep. And the question is, how does the satisfaction of Christ become our righteousness, seeing that it is without us? And it be, and and I've got a sort of paraphrase here. It's a it's a pretty lengthy answer, but it says there are two ways in which the satisfaction of Christ is made over unto us, and it lists these two ways, and then it sort of summarizes. It, it says first he first imputes it unto us, and then works faith in us, right? right. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, and then that faith is then worked out uh, passively, then receiving that righteousness of what Christ has done for us. And uh, so I was really struck by that because I've heard, uh, not to throw names, but I've heard uh, some brothers kind of accuse uh, Michael Hort, Dr. Horton of uh, sort of a Lutheran uh, emphasis on justification or, or talking about righteousness before vital union. And uh, I was confused by that because as I started to see, man, this is the Heidelberg. Uh, other uh, great Reformed theologians have, have clearly made this distinction. And um, and then seeing those texts uh, that you just went through for us was very helpful for me. Yeah, absolutely. Some other proof texts, since we're still on the question of where do you find this in Scripture, I would add two other really crucial ones for me, uh, Romans 5.18 and Romans 8.10. So Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And mm. that's the ESV, but uh, that last phrase leads to justification and life. In Greek, it says justification of life. It's a genitive, not the, the word and mm. is not there. So what does that mean? Justification of life means justification that brings life. In fact, I think that's how the NIV translates it. Justification that brings life. So just as Adam sinned and then uh, his one trespass led to condemnation to all men. And then because of that condemnation, they then inherit a sinful nature. So death, right? And then mm -hmm. by, by comparison, Christ's one act of righteousness leads to justification. There's the forensic imputation of life. That is the justification or the imputation that brings life. So that because of that justification, we now have the mm -hmm. parallel to the sinful nature, which is a new heart. We have regeneration. So you could say justification that brings yeah, regeneration, is. if you will. So, 
<laughs> so justification yeah, the, the, that brings the, uh, life. Romans five five. Yeah. Okay. And then I was just gonna yeah. say, yeah, the NIV does say it says uh, one one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Oh, okay. Maybe that's the the more recent edition of the NIV. I think there's an older edition, 1984, that says justification that brings life. It may. I may. I'm looking on Logos, so I, I bet you I have yeah. the. Uh, Let me just check here. real quick. 1984. Yeah. 1984 says, consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Oh, wow. Okay. So the NIV is sometimes really good. Sometimes I mean, not always, good. but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and then the other key verse for me is Romans 8.10. Um, you know, this is the context says that, uh, you know, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. And remember I said before that, you know, going back to what is vital union anyway, it's just basically receiving the spirit, Romans 16, 7. They were in Christ before me. That's when they received the spirit, right? Mm. So that's the context here, right? You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Mm. And that last phrase, the spirit is life because of righteousness, is basically saying the reason why you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit is because of the righteousness of Christ that was credited to you. Okay. I see it. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so helpful. All these texts and and uh, as we're thinking more about this, so so I can hear someone saying, "Okay, all right, so you've you've uh, you've made this distinction between imputation and justification." Well, Doctor Irons, you've messed up my orders, my order salutis. Right, <laughs> right. You've messed up the order of things, um, and the order salutis obviously is. Uh, well, of course, it's helpful, right? We've got a sort of order order salutis in Romans eight. Um, I think sometimes in, in our desire to be, uh, precise, we, we get really focused on the order of things, I think that are in an unhelpful way, but what, if you were to give us sort of your understanding of the order of salutis, right, in light of this distinction between imputation and justification, what, what would it be? So this is a very, um, confusing issue. Uh, mm -hmm. the order of salutis that is the discussion of the order of salutis, the discussion of different theologians trying to exactly nail down the precise order of every event in the order in the application of redemption to us. So remember that the context is redemption accomplished is what Christ did in history. He fulfilled the law. He went to the cross. He rose again from the dead. But then redemption applied is when the Holy Spirit takes the work of Christ and applies it to me in my own life. At some point in my life, I get those benefits. I'm born uh, under the wrath of God, dead in trespasses and sins. But at some point, the Holy Spirit applies the redemption that Christ purchased to me as an individual. And it's in my own experience, in my own history, in my own life. So that's what the Ordo Salutis is about. How does God apply it? In what order does he apply it? So this whole discussion of the Ordo, ordo Salutis, the order of the application, is very confusing and 
murky. And the reason why is because uh, theologians have made two mistakes. Well, maybe that's too strong to say mistakes, but uh, the, the discussion has taken place with two oversights, two things that are missing. First thing that's been missing is distinguishing between uh, the, the sort of usual, you know, ordinary ordo salutis, if you're thinking of an adult coming to faith in Christ from outside of the covenant community. You know, when you're thinking of somebody like the Apostle Paul, right? He's breathing out violence against the church and then bam, God saves him and he becomes a Christian. So if you're thinking about that kind of classic case, then you're going to have certain ways of defining the order salutis. But you can't just focus on that kind of simple, obvious case because there are other uh, types of people out there in the world, right? There's infants that die in infancy who are maybe elect. We don't know, but if they are elect, then they're going to have an order salutis too, right? But it's not going to be the same as Paul's. Uh, That's right. Or if you're a Presbyterian and you hold to a Reformed view of baptism, then it's also possible to conceive of a child uh, being uh, saved from a very young age and not having any like clear-cut moment when you can say, oh, that person was converted you know, on May 5th or something. But a process mm. that you can see the fruits of conversion in their life as they get older, but you can't pinpoint when they were regenerated. So... Because of that, because of, so that's the first oversight is the tendency to define the order salutis purely in terms of the Paul test case of the adult <clears throat> and to ignore the other types of uh, order salutises that can exist for different people. The second oversight is a failure to distinguish between the two levels on which the order salutis occurs. The order salutis, the application of redemption to the individual occurs on two levels. There's the there's the objective level, which is purely apart from our conscious awareness. And there's the subjective level, which is when we come to conscious faith in Christ and we experience it. So the conscious side of it is what we call conversion, right? The, the objective side of it is God's work. And, you know, as Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it wills and you don't know. I mean, who knows? When, who, who can tell you exactly when they were regenerated? You could say maybe this is the first day I remember believing in Christ, but who can say when they were regenerated? No one can pinpoint that moment. It happens totally objectively, totally secretly, totally apart from our conscious awareness, right? And so when we're talking about the ordo salutis, we have to distinguish between those two levels. And the mistake that some theologians have made is to mix them together as if they're on the same level. So... You know, one order salutis that you might have heard is effectual calling is the first thing. Then that leads to faith. Then because I have faith, now I'm justified because I'm justified by faith. And then as a result of that, I'm sanctified and then ultimately glorified. Well, you see, there's a mixing going on there because faith is at the subjective level of conscious awareness, but effectual calling uh, has well, effectual calling is an interesting one because it has both, right? Effectual calling is sort of a mixture in itself of both the objective and the subjective because it's the objective is regeneration. Regeneration is the objective core of effectual calling. The subjective side of it is effectual calling in the sense of I'm sitting there, I'm an unbeliever at this moment, but I'm hearing the gospel preached. And then through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit works faith in me. And so I'm effectually called. 
So effectual calling in and of itself is sort of a, uh, an interesting mixture of both levels, but that's not bad as long as we're clearly defining those levels and we're not putting them together. So, so anyway, my whole thing is, uh, if you want to define the absolute objective, uh, ordo salutis apart from any kind of subjective appropriation and just look at purely the objective work of God, it's imputation and regeneration and glorification. Mm. But, uh, if you want to bring in the subjective side of it, then you have to say something like imputation, then regeneration, and then we can go, we could like have, imagine just these two layers, you know? So now we go, now we hop up to the upper layer of the subjective. And so now we've got faith and then we have subjective justification, which is our own personal appropriation of the righteousness of Christ. And that, that gives us a sense of assurance and acceptance before God. And then uh, sanctification, glorification, something like that. So yeah, that that that's helpful to at least think through. And I think that the the point you made of mixing those two layers is helpful as well as you think about the the difficulty with that, and you know, uh, and just uh, wrestling with those things and thinking through them. And and uh, and in one sense, you know, some of these things uh, you you don't know. You're th- talking about. Uh, the moment of regeneration for a person and the moment they profess faith in Christ. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, so there's, uh, there's sort of a logical ordering to these things, but it isn't, uh, it isn't purely a temporal order either. Right. Some of these things are happening. There is. So, so jumping right into our last thing here, we would, I think we would both say, uh, uh, you know, effectual calling united to Christ, uh, justification and sanctification are both. Uh, we would. I'll I'll say this, and then you correct it if you if you wouldn't say this. But justification and sanctification are both uh, simultaneous um, and inseparable, and yet they're distinct. But we would. I would then go on to say, but there's still a logical priority of justification over sanctification. Um, so there's. So I, I guess I'm thinking of like the distinction between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. I think I think you see that in somewhere yeah. like uh, Hebrews Hebrews ten thirteen, you know, for a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, ha, you know, has protect perfected, um, being you know being sanctified. sanctified. Yeah. But um, so as we move into justification and sanctification, though, Doctor Irons, what I kind of moving going backwards now to the debate for just a second, as I sort of saw the two schools interact, one of the critiques that always seem to come from Dr. Gaffin and and, uh, and others is, especially when, 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 when the case is being made, wait a second, Calvin does give a logical priority to justification. Um, he would, he, Dr. Gaffin especially would say, well, Calvin there is only talking about definitive sanctification there. Um, or yeah, not progressive sanctification. I might have that backwards there. Or sorry, Calvin is merely talking of progressive sanctification, not definitive sanctification. So that that text that I read earlier um, from Calvin, he would say that that Calvin there is talking about progressive sanctification. Uh, that is obviously ongoing. There is a definitive point in time for justification, but progressive sanctification is ongoing throughout the life of the believer. Um, 
Do you think that's a help? Do you think? How helpful is that distinction between definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification? And does that really even answer what was being being said? I might be asking too much there in that question. But yeah, well, this concept of definitive sanctification is a little bit confusing. Um, I think John Murray was the first one to argue that. Uh, and the question is, how do you define definitive sanctification? Because you could define it either as basically being the same thing as regeneration or the same thing as justification. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And so wh why then have this new category of definitive sanctification? Why not just stick with the traditional ones, the traditional terminology? Um, so if you define definitive sanctification as basically being regeneration, which is the moment when the reign of sin is definitively broken in your life and you're no longer under the power of sin, doesn't mean you're sinless, doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin, but God has changed your heart and you're no longer under the power of sin, uh, then fine. Yeah, that's just, that's basically what I would call regeneration. Um, so then the question is, what is the relationship between justification and regeneration? Um, so the traditional or not traditional, I should say, one of the common arguments you hear on that is, well, uh, justification is by faith. Regeneration is the cause of faith. So therefore the order is regeneration, faith, justification. Uh, and then my response to that is, yeah, but you're talking about subjective justification there. And you have to ask yourself, what is the cause mm -hmm. of regeneration? Where does regeneration come from? Does God just willy nilly regenerate people without having any attitude towards them? No, regeneration is the highest gift of the, one of the highest blessings of the gospel, right? Well, it's one of the two, right? The two main blessings of the gospel are justification and regeneration. And why would God give you that blessing unless he has already decided to be favorable towards you? And so that means that, mm. you know, I mean, you could use it first Peter one, right? Of his great, according to his great mercy, he has begotten us again to a, to a living hope. Mm. So God's favor is primary. God's, the imputation of righteousness has to happen first. Because before that point, we're still under the wrath of God, right? We're still under the old Adam and we're still right. dead in trespasses and sins and children of wrath. So at some point, God has to impute the righteousness of Christ to us. He has to uh, change from an attitude of wrath to an attitude of favor. And then because of that, he blesses us with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, which regenerates us. So... Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, it just seems. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah. Anyway, that's going the back helpful. to the whole I, issue. That's the question I had here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, yeah, just going back to the whole issue of definitive, uh, definitive sanctification. I just don't see how that helps anything. It doesn't. It doesn't solve the problem. It just comes up with a new term, but we still have to figure out what is the relationship between the forensic and the transformative. So. Yeah, yeah, that was my thoughts exactly, and I was asking that saying, you know, what is what is the distinction between definitive sanctification and justification, and even if you place, as you said, definitive sanctification as 
simply meaning regeneration. Well, the legal still precedes that, the imputation of Christ's righteousness right. as the second Adam. So now that that's helpful. So, Dr. Ryan, as we close, I just don't want to miss this opportunity. I could hear someone saying, okay, we, we get the debate. Okay, I grant, yes, uh, imputation uh, uh, proceeds, right, this distinction between imputation and justification. Um, how do, why does this matter uh, for the Christian um, and their Christian lives? Well, I think it matters because it affects how you go about pursuing sanctification. We're called to do that. We're called, you know, as Christians to walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called. You know, we're called to uh, put to death our, our sinful deeds and desires and to live for Christ and to continually repent of our sins and pursue sanctification. But if we view sanctification as being um, something either separate from justification or not grounded in justification, then it's going to lead to sort of this, um, it's going to lead to a view of sanctification and a, a view of the Christian life that hangs your assurance on how well you're doing in the Christian life. Mm. And uh, I go back to that quote that I gave earlier from Calvin, um, not the hinge quote, but the one right after that where he says, unless you understand first of all what your position is before God and what the judgment which he passes upon you is, you have no foundation on which your salvation can be laid or on which piety toward God can be reared. You need to, in order to begin to strive for piety, for godliness, you need to know what is God's attitude towards me? Does he love me or does he hate me? <laughs> am I under wrath or am I under yeah. grace? You know? I need to know Amen. that. Amen. I need to know that before I can start on this journey. Because if I'm starting on the journey yes. of sanctification, thinking that God is wrathful towards me, then what does that do? That make, means that my sanctification is the means by which I propitiate God and get his favor. And that's mm. just works. That's works righteousness. That's, that's the Roman Catholic view. That's we're down the road to Rome. We're down the road to lack of assurance and trying to be sanctified and trying to be justified by our own works. So I need to know if God loves me first. I need to know if God, if Christ has died for my sins and if his righteousness in, is imputed to me and have that assurance firm and clear before I can begin even one iota of that step towards the Christian life. So that's, it's very practical. This whole understanding of the priority of the forensic has direct practical implications for the Christian life and for sanctification, for preaching. Like how is, how is the preacher going to encourage people to, to grow in the Christian life? Is he going to preach it like this and say, all you people out there, you you think you're just Christians, but you're just uh, warming the pews with the fires of hell and you guys don't have any true godliness and I see all your sins and I know how, how much you guys are so far from the Lord. You need to repent and get right with God and start being obedient. And then maybe you can have some assurance. Is that how you should mm. preach? No. Mm. You preach the gospel. The gospel's for Christians too, right? The gospel is Christ died for sinners like me. And I need to know that and be assured of that. And only as a result of that, then, can I have the, the gratitude, the, 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 the sense of the Spirit living within me to, 
motivate me to want to more and more die into sin and live unto righteousness and doing it not to earn God's favor or even to earn God's assurance to, to earn assurance because some people will say well I'm not saying justification is by works I'm just saying that assurance is by works well that's just as bad in my opinion I don't see much of a difference between those two <laughs> things <laughs> yeah. so yeah so you need to have assurance assurance is primary assurance is the engine that dr that drives the Christian life without that assurance you have nothing uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one, makes that very clear, where it says, you know, what is your only comfort in life and in death, that I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior. He's fully paid for all my sins and all that. And then it says, because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and only then makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Assurance is primary. In other words, justification mm. is primary. Justification is assurance. That's what justification, we're talking about subjective justification now, right? Subjective justification is the conscious enjoyment of all that we have in Christ. And so assurance is the thing that we need in order to grow in the Christian life. And not only that, but if we don't have assurance, then all of our efforts at trying to uh, crucify our flesh and trying to live for Christ are going to become legalistic and they're going to become works-based attempts to earn God's favor by what we do. So it's very practical. The other practical aspect of it to me is how you define faith and how you understand what faith is. Because if the uh, if we do believe in this idea that imputation is primary, then faith is simply receiving it. Faith is simply, remember that quote you gave from Buchanan, which was perfect, right on the nose. Faith is not a condition. It's not the work. It's not as though faith is like, of course, this was what Richard Baxter said, right? The uh, Puritan guy right. who uh, right. fought with John Owen. He said that, you know, God knows that we can't keep the law perfectly. So what he's done is he's, given us an easier law and now all we have to do is just have faith and if we have faith but then of course how does faith become defined well it becomes defined as sort of this obedient faith and repentance is a part of it but anyway his idea was that it's a lower condition it's easier for us to reach the bar is lower so if we just do that if we just do our part which is to repent and believe then god will do his part and forgive us but that's not what faith is. Faith is not a condition. Faith is not something that I do in order to earn God's favor or to, or even in that lesser covenant of works, the watered down covenant of works. It's not, it's not my part. And then God does his part of forgiving my sins. No, faith is simply mm. the empty hand that receives what has already been given to us in Christ. Faith is not a work. Faith is not something that I do. Faith is simply looking away from myself to Christ and receiving what he has done, receiving his righteousness. The Heidelberg Catechism again says, what is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. It is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel. That, so a trust that, God has freely granted, not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. 
Faith is not, Amen. I'm doing this so Amen. that I can get forgiven and get righteousness. Faith is the trust that I've already received it in Christ. So it changes the definition of faith. It changes, it totally affects sanctification. It affects preaching. It affects assurance. Um, yeah, it's, it's absolutely critical. So... Amen. Well, brother, I, I've really, man, I, I've really benefited from this conversation, uh, preparing for it, and um, and just getting a better understanding of the gospel. You know, someone once asked me, they said, do I have to, would you say a Christian has to understand covenant theology and the distinction between the covenant of works and covenant of grace to understand the gospel? And my answer is, of course, no. But when a, when a believer does understand the sort of the covenantal foundations, if you will, of the gospel. It not only helps them see the, the depths and the beauty of the gospel, it also equips them in one sense, I think, to be a better defender of the gospel. So like you said, when someone, I mean, you, you were talking about Richard Baxter and, and, and uh, the definition of faith and, and it being some sort of uh, faithfulness or thing. I'm thinking, man, there's, there's people today that say that. People who, uh, they're not Roman Catholics. They're not these... Uh, uh, brazen new perspective, Paul guys, but people that are uh, in Christian churches, they're well-read th uh, theologians that people like to read who define faith this way. And uh, yeah. but when you understand the f the covenantal structure and and the federal work that Christ has done for us, the gospel becomes uh, so beautiful. And in one sense, um, uh, you get to see the. The, the freeness and the fullness of God's grace that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Right. And, uh, you know, as, as I got to mention, as, as Klein would say, uh, you know, heaven's got to be earned, uh, but it's earned <laughs> for us through Jesus Christ. And uh, so thank you so thank you so much, brother, for coming on. And uh, if people want to kind of just keep up with what you're writing, is the best place to kind of go upper register? Yeah, upperregister.com. Uh, with a, a hyphen between upper and register. Um, yeah, that's probably the best place to go. Perfect, perfect. And you well, can also thank contact me there. So. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you all for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time.